Have you been feeling stuck, exhausted, and finding yourself living as a passenger in your own life? By giving away so much of your energy and power to everyone and everything around you. But you? Well, you are not alone. My name is Dr. Valérie Johnston Dugamin, osteopath, and I have been there too. After being burned out, exhausted, I decided to take control of my life and get back into my driver's seat. It wasn't easy though, but I did it. And you can do it too. In this podcast, I will share stories, invite guest speakers, and provide insight and tips on how to turn your life around and move back into your driver's seat. My guest today is a speaker, a best-selling author, and a co-founder of Rema Team, a life and leadership coaching company for women. She is sharing her story of overcoming trauma and living with mental health challenges to inspire others to believe that the broken pieces of the past can lead to beauty, strength, and new beginnings. She also shares how to move past the myth of posing to rest. Thank you and welcome Raquel Perman to the Driver's Seat Club. Thanks so much for having me and letting me come for a little while and talk to your audience today. Well, with the story as big as overcoming trauma, sometimes it's like, how much do you cover? But I have been in the coaching and counseling industry for nearly a decade. And I've worked with clients both privately and in groups, also in keynotes and breakout sessions and all kinds of different ways that I've been able to work with clients over the years. And one of the things that really has started to become a pattern is the women that I work with are often trying to overcome something while they're simultaneously building something. And that could be anything from a business to their career, to raising a family, to being a special needs mom, all kinds of different things that we're trying to do moving forward. But we tend to have this thing that kind of holds us back in our past. And simultaneously healing while we're also building can be a really difficult thing to balance. And what I noticed over the years, as I started to share more of my story, is that women were looking for ways that they could overcome physical health issues, emotional health issues, and just kind of balancing all of the things. They'd come to me and be like, well, how do you do it? Like, what do you do? And I know what they wanted was like a one, two, three step. And it was never that simple. But I got divorced about four years ago. I think we're coming up here on four years. I was in a relationship with my high school sweetheart, but he was an alcoholic. And he was an alcoholic from the moment that we said I do until the moment that I left. And we were together for 19 years, 14 years married. We had three beautiful children that came out of that union. But being married to an alcoholic definitely took a toll on my emotional health, on my physical health. What happened after we divorced wasn't something that I could predict necessarily, is that my emotional health and my physical health would kind of come to the surface. There were a lot of things that I hadn't dealt with over the years that were all of a sudden like, I need you to pay attention. We need to go to the doctor to get these things figured out. Now that you're quote unquote safe, it's time to take care 
of you. So that really started my journey of how do I really balance it all and not just look like I'm balancing it all, like social media perfect, but how do I really do it? Like, how do I do it so I can balance my mental health issues and my physical health issues and still also build a business that I love? Why did don't you look after yourself while in the marriage? What stopped you? Well, we had three little ones. So that was definitely one of the reasons. I was also putting myself through college during that time. And when you share a life with an addict or somebody who has mental health issues, your needs go on the back burner. It tends to be a life that is mostly putting out fires and chaos. So whether they're um, highly functioning at some moments or they're just really having a hard time and struggling with it, it's always that disease first and then everything else second. It's not even that person first. Like it wasn't even really my spouse first, but that disease of alcoholism took over every moment of our lives. And so everything had to revolve around. It was like the elephant in the room when you know that expression. And I'm not sure if it's something that you do on purpose. It just kind of becomes that, that you don't have the choice necessarily to do anything more than survive. Um, There is no such thing as thriving in a relationship like that or with somebody who is if you are somebody who is an alcoholic, like there is no thriving, there's just surviving day in and day out, moment by moment. And so because of that, there wasn't any time to make taking care of me a huge priority other than the baseline things. And then everything else energy wise went to the kids, like raising the kids, making sure that their home environment was good as it could be going to college, starting the business. I kept myself busy. And so I think a lot of that kind of casted a shadow over some of the physical health and emotional health needs. So I think that was part of the reason. How old were you when you got together? And at the time, did you know what you were getting yourself into? We met when I was 16 and we married, I was 20. I did know that there was a problem already by then. But I think I was too naive at that point and young to realize what that meant. Because it was exactly a year later that I left the first time because the alcoholism was already starting to go from just kind of casual to drinking every night, large amounts every night. So it happened really quickly. I can't say I didn't see any red flags, but I had no idea the spiral it would go into after we got married. And because we were so young, I kind of think I felt like he would just grow out of it. Like it was a college partying phase. All of our friends were doing it. It was still fun. We didn't have any kids involved. And so, yeah, there were definitely red flags. Like I knew I was kind of running into a burning house, um, which is a tiny little bucket. But I did really believe that we could outgrow it and love would be enough to survive it. And it just didn't turn out that way. So knowing how things were, when did you start to have children? We were married at 20. I had my first baby at 24. I had the second baby at 27 and the third one at 30. So they're about three years apart exactly. After the birth of your first child, did your ex-husband behavior got better or it got totally worse? Adding the first baby definitely increased the amount of time that he was out of the house drinking and doing things like that. And I was home then all the time with the baby. So for me, and I had postpartum with all three of the kids. And so he also worked a job that was shift work. So I was alone a lot. And that certainly did not help my mental and emotional health. 
But no, it did not solve anything. It did not make it better. It definitely made it more responsibilities, like you said. And so then there was more stress to that. And because he was out of town quite a bit, there was a lot of stress that was added on my plate because that wasn't really my idea when I got married that I was going to be a part-time single parent. Either I don't think anybody thinks that when they get married that they're like, oh, I just don't want this to work or I want to raise these kids by myself. But no, not with any of our three kids did it help. Most times it actually made it much worse the two years or so after each kid was born as we were adjusting to new life. I ask all of this question because there may be a lot of people in the same situation as you. So when did you decide that enough was enough and you wanted to get out of this environment? Four times total before the very last time. And the average is seven, at least in the United States, that a woman will leave a relationship like that before she finally leaves the last time. And so it would have been in 2016 that we ended up, I ended up giving back my wedding ring and said that he had a certain amount of time to go to rehab and make some changes. And what I wanted to see was not just so much going to rehab, but that like he was having long-term behavior changes. We had seen this over and over again. It's a really common addict tale too, that there's like honeymoon phases where they can get sober for a little while. But if they never deal with the reason that they choose to numb the pain with alcohol, it comes back. And so we had a lot of moments like that where it was sober for a while and things were good. And then drinking again from stress or whatever would kind of trigger that, it just kind of became more escalated that probably 2015 to 2016 year where there was no more calm times. It was always like mountaintop crisis. And so what I saw more than anything was that as my kids were starting to grow up, they were starting to emulate some of that behavior in the way that they talked, in the way that they responded to me and just some of their mannerisms. And that scared me. All I could think was if I wait until, especially my son is in high school and he starts portraying the same kinds of behavior as his dad, what am I going to do? Like, he's going to be bigger than me. He's going to be taller than me. Is there a way I can give this kid a better chance at life and breaking a chain? So I decided, you know, one last ditch effort, please go to rehab. This is the time frame um, that I have. And pretty much once I gave that wedding ring back, it was kind of like caged animal and it spiraled out of control pretty quickly. So by that following, so I think that was October-ish, by seven months later, I walked out the door and I knew it was done. He wasn't getting any better and he certainly wasn't going to take that threat of me not being around. I wasn't enough to save him from his addiction. He had to choose to do it himself. And so that's where we ended up. So it took about nine months or so of a separation before I just wasn't seeing what I needed to see to stay anymore. After you left that marriage, how challenging was it for you? Well, I lost about 22 pounds in a month. So I wasn't dealing with it. Great. And one of the things that I did right about the time that I left and said it's over is I ended up at the doctor and I was at the doctor mostly for, I think I needed to get like a yearly exam or whatever. And I brought up what was going on and said that I had left and told her, you know, kind of the weight loss and all of that. And I remember she like pulled her chair over so she could like come sit right in front of me by the table. 
and her voice dropped like a whole octave. And you know that the doctor's serious when they lower their voice like that. And she goes, honey, I need you to promise me that you're going to take care of you now. And it was the first time that I've ever had somebody, A, believe me on what I was telling her about this relationship without any questions or like, are you sure it was really that bad or, you know, whatever, but really concerned about my physical and emotional health. Because what she was seeing, I'm sure through her eyes, I know what the pictures look like from then. So it didn't look good. So I did not handle it super great. Thankfully, I had a big support system here with family that were able to help with the kids and all of that kind of stuff. It was definitely a very messy and I would say handling it was not great. I mean, I showed up for work. We had our own business at that point, but it was definitely like the bare minimum was kind of what I could handle for quite some time, probably about a year. My emotional capacity was just not anywhere where I wanted it to be yet. That makes sense. It's very touchy what you're saying. So tell me about the other support, uh, because you say that when you went to see the doctor, it was the first person that you felt like listened to you. So at any time during that journey, did you feel like people could understand what you were going through? I did have my family here. They, they live, my mom lives here in town. My brother lives here in town. But the thing that actually happened was they didn't actually turn into my biggest support system. They were there for my kids and some of the other things that they needed. But my best friend and business partner, they took me in, her husband did. My kids' dad, well, he was on shift work, so we kind of just would share the house. So when he was here, while well, we were, you know, finalizing all the divorce, it's never a quick process. So when he was in town, he'd stay at the house with the kids, and then I'd go live with them for those two weeks that he was home. They became, like, probably even more family than they ever had been. She was always my best friend since we were in middle school. but. During that time is when both her and her husband just like unconditional cleaned out their spare room, cleaned out doors in their bathroom. Her husband, the first night that I stayed there, had cleaned out all of his space in the bathroom so that I would have space to be there because he didn't want me to live out of suitcases every time I came there. So they were the ones and the very first ones to just go above and beyond to just kind of envelop me in this system where I could just be there and I could grieve. And I could be angry and I could have all of the emotions and nobody else was around. It was a safe place for me to heal because being at the home with the kids, I couldn't do that. Like, you know, you can't do that when the kids are awake. You help them through their emotions. And then when everybody's asleep, then you kind of deal with all the stuff. But that became my haven. And that became my safe place to be because so much of the family needed to help with the three kids and getting everybody where they needed to be and to and from school and all that. And I'm so grateful that they were there to help. But for me personally, it was Mandy and her husband that really just became that for me. How did you get better while dealing with all this trauma? And what was the trigger for you to say, okay, I'm okay now? I think it's probably hard to pinpoint one thing because I ended up really needing to do a lot of things and have a lot of people in a lot of different categories helping me get to the point that I was able to parent and do all the things that I needed to do and not feel like I was being held back by some of the health challenges and the mental health. So I think for me, the very first thing that I did was join a domestic violence support group. And that was a catalyst for a ton of healing. I wasn't quite ready to do like clinical level counseling. It was my first time that I really dipped my toe into the idea that 
being the wife of an alcoholic for as long as I was qualifies me for a domestic violence sticker on it. Like I didn't want that. I didn't want to be a part of that club. I didn't think like I belonged there. Within two meetings, I was like, oh, yep, I belong here. This is these are my people. This is not my story that I wanted. Um, but that was the very first place that I went to, other than my medical doctor. She was the first one to diagnose me finally with depression on a, med- and on a clinical level. And then I started the domestic violence groups. And then after that, um, I went to meetings for probably a year and a half every single week. Then I started to move into more of the traditional therapy. I looked at doing EMDR at that time. I wasn't quite ready for that. Um, So I put that off a little bit, but I did end up going with a neuropsychologist and doing some EMDR to help with some of the trauma memories. I had a lot of nightmares and PTSD symptoms. So it's kind of been a whole group of people. And then I started getting neuropathy pain and nerve pain about two and a half years ago. And so that's when a medical team started having to be on board with this whole mental health and physical health challenges at the same time. So I still have a counselor. I still go to a counselor to this day because I still co-parent with my kids' dad. And the great part of the story now is that he's three years sober. So he got sober about a year after we divorced, which is so great for the kids. It does make co-parenting so much easier, but I still see him all the time. We still parent together. And because of that, counseling still needs to be important. I need some place to you know, just talk through the different feelings that I still have. Even five years, even from the separation is not that long. It seems like a long time, but sometimes it's not when it comes to emotional healing. I don't go to support groups anymore. I kind of graduated from that, but now I moved more into advocate after the support that I got. That's kind of how I think I've progressed in my journey is from somebody who was receiving the services to somebody that advocates for other women. You say that you are a coach. Did you become a coach before or after you move out of the marriage? So probably the easiest way to explain it is that I was a lay counselor in a church environment. So what I would do is I would come in and do pastoral care and counseling for the parishioners inside that church. So I graduated with a degree in psychology and biblical counseling, and then I got certified as a board-certified biblical counselor. And so that was my first. And while I was doing that, I learned about coaching. And the cool thing about it was while I was doing my degree, they started doing classes teaching you how to be a coach. And I was like, I think I'm going to like this a lot more. So I started that kind of simultaneously. And it was definitely at the same time that I was in this relationship. And yes, there was a lot of games going on in my head and words like hypocrites were big. And I was never quiet about the story. Uh, People knew that the marriage wasn't exactly healthy or anything like that. Um, It's hard to keep a secret like that. I mean, maybe the depths of what was going on were more secret, but people knew that we were having hard times in our marriage and all of that. And so I struggled quite a bit with the industry that I was in, the clients that I was helping and all of that, because I didn't feel qualified. I'm like, how am I going to help other people if my life is continually feeling like it's falling apart? And my first husband was a business partner in the first coaching and counseling business that my best friend and I started. We were in our second business that we rebranded. So he was an owner. So then we had to go through all of that on how to go from a four-person owned company to a two-person owned company. So there was a lot of change and growth and stretching. It wasn't just 
my ex-husband and I got a divorce. It really was a ripple effect to every area of my life. How are you now? I am a lot better now. And I think it's because I came to the point probably about a year ago, year and a half ago, that I needed to be okay with the fact that I might be on medicine for my entire life for mental health. I might need to be on certain things so that I can function at my best as a mom. I might need to say no to certain things or yes to certain things so that I could put my health, be back in the driver's seat of my health and my life and really figuring out what balance looked like for me and what success looked like for me. And we often tell our clients that balance is not a schedule problem. It's an emotional problem. One of the definitions of the word balance, when you look it up in the dictionary, it's, you know, there's probably seven or eight different definitions of it. And one of the definitions is emotional stability. And that's the thing that I really love to teach my clients. It's the thing I think I've learned how to do over the last few years is if I prioritize my emotions and what I need to be uh, mentally well and at my best, everything else falls into place the way that it's supposed to. Wow, that's beautiful to hear. It sounds like you have now turned your life around. So tell me, health-wise, how are you looking after yourself? Apart from all the other medical support, have you been maybe improving your diet or changing anything, doing more exercises, or you were still doing things before? One of the things that I ended up getting diagnosed with after I left, which is very common with people with anxiety disorders or PTSD, is I got IBS along with it. Because if you have a panic brain, your stomach likes to panic too. So I definitely had to change the way that I was eating. Well, I can eat just about anything, but there's horrible consequences to eating dairy. And I have to follow a pretty strict diet when it comes to IBS because Uh, What we found out is that I have some sugar allergies and a lot of foods turn into sugar inside your belly that should be healthy for you, but they're not for me. Um, So that was one of the first things I had to do was start changing the way that I ate. Second thing was getting back into yoga. I really love the slower movement of yoga. Like I will never be that run run a marathon girl or going to spin class or anything like that. I'm like, where's the stretching? And the nap at the end where we just get to lay in a dark room and relax. Um, So getting back into yoga was a huge thing. I do yoga at home. And with the neuropathy pain and the nerve pain, they still haven't figured out. It's been three years. We still haven't quite figured out where that comes from. Still on that journey. And it's one of the exercises I can do that doesn't cause my nerve pain to spike. So yoga became the thing that I can go through an hour yoga class and sometimes I couldn't walk around my block. So it was really trying to figure out what the physical limitation was going to be. I found a massage therapist that worked specifically with nerve pain, miracle worker. I don't even know. I can't even explain it. So he definitely became a part of that, like the tools that I needed to get better. And then the counseling. Um, I do have a therapist that I see now that I see her probably three to four weeks, every three to four weeks. And about anything and everything. Sometimes it has to do with past stuff. Sometimes it's current things. I'm raising two teenagers. So there's always something. Wow. What an amazing story. So as a coach, what piece of advice could you give from your own experience? The first thing that I did that was probably the most helpful, and I did not want to do it at all, was call the National Domestic Violence Helpline. I didn't know what to do. One of my friends was like, I think you should call this. And I'm like, I don't want to, because once I call it, then it's real. 
but it was the best phone call I ever made. They were able to connect me with the local team. And from there, then the support that I was able to find after that was amazing. And so if you're in that, like you can relate to that story, that's what I would recommend. Sometimes it's easier to call a national hotline than your own local support center, even if you know you have one. It just made it easier for me to do it that way. If you are somebody who's dealing with addiction, find an AA meeting, find a sponsor, start going to meetings. You don't even have to be sober to go to the meeting. You can show up exactly as you are and just start one day at a time. And I think both for the person who is an alcoholic and maybe the person who is the partner of an alcoholic, it literally is one day at a time. It just depends on what kind of support you are looking for. So make the phone calls. There are people out there that have been in your shoes that know what to do. They're not going to treat you like they don't believe you or like there's something wrong with you. And you can really start that healing process that you need to have because it's really hard to make choices in the beginning. So having somebody that is not a family member or a friend that can just be impartial, it's so important. And tell me, what do you provide to this woman that you're working with? I do not do domestic violence advocacy work as a coach. It's a line legally I can't cross. So what I generally tend to do is come alongside women who already are working with a counselor or a therapist, but also need some additional guidance when it comes to some of the coping skills and some of the the creating this new future for herself. Sometimes you need more than one person. And so I find a lot of our clients are women that have counselors, but they just need that extra push. And sometimes because counselors are so stretched thin right now, we can kind of help fill that gap where maybe you can only get into a counselor like once every four or six weeks. And oftentimes then we can kind of fill that gap as well. But mostly what we work on with our clients and me with my clients is leadership skills. And when it comes to that, like we really look at the five different leadership characteristics that we think as a company, the most successful women have. And they're the ones that are overcoming trauma and they're overcoming like our story is not simple when it comes to how we teach people. We've heard all of my background. My business partner has a lot of health disorders. She was born with cystic fibrosis. So us building a company is not the hustle club. It's like trying to figure out how to life and build a business at the same time. And that is exactly how we teach our women is that you can live and lead well, and we can help you do both. When it is women that are maybe a little bit, there's not as much time between when they've left a toxic relationship. We'll often do one-on-one type coaching with her. I definitely have coaching programs that I put them through that kind of help with that self-esteem, help with that confidence, help with those first few decisions that you need to be making about what to move and and do forward. But those are definitely one-on-one. And then we also have groups and different things. It kind of just depends on where you're at in your own personal journey. We have courses. If you're not even ready to talk to a coach yet, we do have courses and things where I can just come into your living room and you can just put my voice on whenever you need it. And so we do try to have high touch at really any price point so that women don't have any excuse to not have somebody come alongside them and tell them they're doing okay. Tell them that they are resilient and they can be authentic and they can say yes to new opportunities and you know be that assertive, confident woman that they want to be. And just because you've got this thing in your past or you have a health challenge doesn't disqualify you from the life you want to live or the success that you want to have. Wow, this is amazing. So would you say that now you are on the driver's seat of your life? I think I am definitely in the driver's seat of my life. (laughs) It's a great place to be. Okay. 
What does it look to be on the driver's seat of your life? Wow, it definitely looks like something I had never really had before. I think because I had met my my kids' dad when I was you know 15, 16, it was hard to imagine life before that. So for me, it's kind of like I'm creating it up as I go. And being in the driver's seat of my life means that you know I can kind of have the fun that I want to have and create the adventures that I want to have and eat the things I want to eat and dress the way that I want to dress and have my home look the way that I want it to look. And so it really comes down to I make choices. And that's a privilege to make a choice. That's kind of what the driver's seat means to me. Oh, thank you so much, Rachel. What an amazing way to finish. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned and subscribe to the Driver's Seat Club. Until next time, have a powerful day.